grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever known someone to go back on an agreement? Maybe someone made a deal with you. Maybe someone signed a contract with you. Maybe somebody just gave you a verbal agreement and they didn't stick to it. They worked their way around it. They backed out of it. They broke it. Kind of like when you tell your kids not to stand on the coffee table and next time you turn around, they're kneeling on it. I didn't stand on it. So you make a, an agreement and then someone breaks it. How does that make you feel when you've made good on your end, but the other person hasn't made good on their end? Does it make you angry? Does it get you frustrated? Does it get you bitter? You find yourself wanting to make things even because you were cheated? Now imagine that that person you made an agreement with was your child. Or your spouse. How does that make you feel? In the book of Jeremiah, we have a prophet who is really letting loose on his frustration. You hear the frustration coming through in Jeremiah's language, in his rhythms, in his vocabulary. There's a tone to it where you sense the prophet is just not happy. And in fact, the Lord who is speaking through the prophet is not happy. But it's not that Jeremiah is just angry. And it's really not that the Lord is just angry. In fact, for us, we don't control our emotions very well. And anger comes through most immediate and most clearly before love ever seems to catch up with us because we're thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about how this is affecting me, not what's happening to the other person. But in Jeremiah 30 and 31, you see the Lord is not angry because of things that he's thinking about himself. He's angry because he's in sorrow. It's a jealous love. And it comes through in this language. Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All of your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. God is dealing with that hurt that Israel was experiencing on account of their own choices. Jeremiah describes it like an affair. He describes it like unfaithfulness in a marriage where Israel has been unfaithful to God. They've cheated on him. And now all of that is catching up to them. It's all catching up to them and they're hurting but they don't know it. They don't know how to deal with it. They're trying and looking in all these different places to deal with that hurt, 
but God says it's incurable. There's no medicine that can ease your pain because now they see all those lovers, which are the idols and false gods and the sinful demons that have tempted them, have now abandoned them. And God is bringing destruction. The city is going to be destroyed. The people are going to suffer. They're going to be led into captivity. And the Lord is describing all of this. But now he says, This is all because of your guilt. It is because of your sins that I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all who plunder you shall be plundered. And the Lord is as much frustrated with the other nations that are taking advantage of the situation as he is with his own people. And so he says, I will restore your health. I will heal your wounds. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. For I am a father to Israel. God shows that the agreement that he made with Israel is not one that's based on a legal contract. It's not based on the kind of deals that the other gods would make with Israel, where they would never, never come to their rescue when they were in true need. Instead, it's a different kind of agreement that's based on family. I am a father to Israel. And he says, I will turn their mourning into joy I will comfort them and give them gladness instead of sorrow. There is hope for your future. God is showing what is really going on in his heart. And Jeremiah is picturing a God with a broken heart, but one which has a plan, one which is committed, one which is faithful. It says his heart yearns for Israel. We said on Palm Sunday that Jesus had taken the role of Jeremiah. He'd come now to Jerusalem and looking over the city, he's weeping, just like Jeremiah, because he knows what's coming. But listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, in the latter days, you will understand. You will understand in the latter days. He's looking ahead. He's saying, this time is not going to last forever. This suffering is not going to last forever. I'm looking ahead to latter days when you will look back on what happened and see the goodness of the Lord in it all. You will see how it all worked out because God is good and his love is everlasting and he is always faithful. And in the end, his covenant, his agreement to make you part of his family remains true. He hasn't given up. That's when we come to chapter 31, which we read earlier. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband, declares the Lord. 
This word covenant is the focus of our sermon tonight, to understand what covenant means and what Jesus means when he says, this is my covenant, and he gives you a cup of wine. The word covenant is originally in the Hebrew, bereth. It is a word that is used in different contexts, generally to mean an agreement, a commitment. When it's between two people or two nations, it can be a treaty or a contract, a deal made between parties. It comes up in Genesis chapter 15. One of the first times it's used besides in context of Noah is Abraham. And in Genesis 15, God says, I will make a covenant with you to bring you into this land and to give it to your descendants. And God enacts a ritual to show Abraham what this means that God is committed to. So Abraham is told to bring some animals for a sacrifice. And once he's prepared them, he's laid them out in two rows, split the animals down the middle and laid them into two rows. And then Abraham falls asleep. Now, he's setting up for a ritual that was common in his day. In the ancient Near East, this was one of the ways that you sealed a covenant deal, was you would lay out these animals, split them in two, lay them out, and you would pass between them with the partner that, that you're making the deal with until you came to the altar. And when you get to the altar, then you make an oath. And both parties would swear that just as these animals died, so may I die if I don't make good on my promise. Because their covenants were not just a legally binding agreement, but it was an agreement before the gods. And they are saying to the gods that if they don't keep their part in this deal, the gods are to strike them dead. That's the oath. That's the covenant. Now, when God makes the same agreement with Abraham, Abraham is sleeping. Abraham falls into a deep sleep and he has a dream and he sees God coming as a torch of fire and a smoking cloud, which passed through, just like God passed through to lead the children of Israel through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. In the night, then, the flame is God's presence going between the sacrifices and now God swearing that he will make good on his deal. So God makes a covenant, only Abraham isn't involved in it. Abraham's sleeping. God alone makes the commitment. Then it comes up again in Exodus, where the word barit appears again in the story. They've come to the mountain. Now Moses is leading Israel, and the Lord speaks of a covenant. He says that he's expanding and extending a covenant now that will be beyond the covenant made to Abraham to address Israel as a nation, as his own special holy nation. So he's giving all of these laws in order to show how Israel is sanctified, how they're special, and how to protect 
that special status as God's people. So there's blood involved in this agreement. And it says in Exodus 24 that Moses offered many, many sacrifices, took all the blood. He sprinkled it on the altar, and then he sprinkled it on the people. He read all the words of the agreement, and the people said, we will keep this word. So with the blood on them, they became sanctified as God's holy nation, and God sealed that deal. However, they did not keep the word. They did not hold to the covenant. So 1,000 years later, God finds that they've completely broken the agreement. They've treated it like a bad business deal that they don't want to make good on anymore. And they've lost sight of the fact that this was God who rescued them out of slavery, who became a husband to them, and they were his bride, and this was the loving relationship that they were supposed to keep for all their time together as husband and wife, but they betrayed him. That's why Jeremiah says, you are sick. But now he promises something new is coming. Because God is so good, so loving, so committed to doing whatever he can for us as sinful human beings. That he will make it happen on his own. When he swore to Abraham that he would keep that promise, he was not going to back out. So even though Israel was unfaithful... God kept his promise. He remained faithful. And he sent Jesus to keep all of the laws in that relationship with God that Israel had failed to do. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah says, that I will make a new covenant. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep as a shepherd keeps his flock. So it's with this in mind that Jesus says, take and eat, take and drink. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And you see how it's a covenant unlike any other. God knows that making that commitment to Abraham when he passed through the sacrifices meant That if God were to let down his end of the bargain, he would have to die. And in a sense, Jesus did both things. He died and he kept the covenant. Just like those sacrifices that had to die, Jesus was the sacrifice that had to die. His covenant signifies a new relationship. And when Jesus says the words of institution, he's enacting that relationship. It's not based on laws. It's closer to an adoption or marriage vows or an inheritance. In fact, the book of Hebrews says it's like an inheritance that we receive at the death of the one who has given it. The last will and testament before Jesus dies, he gives his last wishes. And it is that you would inherit everything that he's earned, everything that he's gained, 
And when you take the Lord's Supper, God is giving you all of that all over again every time, including tonight. It is not only for Israel, but it is for us, the long-lost nations scattered throughout the world that went astray from God a long, long time ago. And our ancestors did horrible things. And yet here is God saying, I will still come to gather you in. I will still love you just as I loved my own people, Israel. He says, take and eat and take and drink. If indeed this was Jesus' last will and testament, and he died, and he never came back, it would mean that we could only remember what he did. It would mean that in remembrance of me would be simply a memorial, symbolic remembrance of what Jesus did in the past. But, like the book of Hebrews points out and emphasizes so fully, Jesus is not dead. And because he rose from the dead, this new covenant continues to be alive and continues to be renewed. And Jesus is not just asking us to remember what he did a long time ago, but he's doing it all over again for us when we say the words and when we eat and drink. Every time we partake of the sacrament, God is making his agreement all over again but in the context of family, like marriage vows that are renewed, we are reaffirming the vows that the Lord has made for us. And with this great gift then comes our own responsibility, our own joining together in his family. And in any family, people have responsibility. For each of us, it includes God's command to love. It includes your loving allegiance to the Lord as the only God and no other. And it includes your love for each other. That's why we call it Maundy Thursday, because Jesus gave a command, a mandate. And it was the new covenant. A new command I give to you that you should love each other. As I have loved you. Yes, Lord. And for this reason, Jeremiah is no longer weeping. And with him and with Jesus and with all who know the risen Lord, we can rejoice tonight.